Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are now entering Odyssey Station. Please remain seated until docking is complete. Odyssey. Dare to wonder. And now, your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour with Dean Haglund and Phil Lairness. Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. Everyone, I am Phil Lairness. I'm coming at you from Los Angeles, California, the city of angels, after two weeks almost spent in Montecito. Wow. And that voice, impressed as he was, was television's very own Dean Haglund. Dean, are you coming at us from a suburb just outside of Detroit, Michigan? Let's say I am. But let's also say that all these suburbs make up Detroit, Michigan. Oh, so, so is it safer to say it's a uh, bedroom community in Detroit? See, bedroom communities suggest that it's a it's a, a distance with no uh, central downtown, but it has a central downtown. This Birmingham, Michigan, and it has its. Uh, it's quirks and it's fun things. So I don't know. Well, I first of all, I think that it, calling it a bedroom community makes it more sound like a Playboy After Dark series from the early eighties. But wow. I also uh, am more confused than when we started about what <laughs> Birmingham is. We'll move it uh, onto the agenda for a future episode. Are you coming? We we've got a lot of production uh, meeting stuff on the air. Uh, because really, frankly, there's not a lot else to talk about. Are you coming to Los Angeles soon? Oh, there's a plan. There's a plan to come to Los Angeles soon. But uh, as you know, we have a new little kitten in the house, and that kitten and that cat and that dog all kind of have to see if we can all travel together by car and uh, and <laughs> make that journey across the country, or we... Um, 
we find a pet sitter. So we don't know. So again, we don't know if it's a bedroom community or a suburb or part of the city, but it has its own downtown. We don't know whether you are coming, whether you're not coming, whether you're driving, whether you're not driving. We don't know. We know less than we did before. I won't even bother to ask you if you'll be in Huron, Ohio, June 4th, 5th, and 6th for the big Trek Federation event uh, being run by some of the same folks who run Odyssey Radio and who invited us uh, to star in our own show there. Um, I won't ask you about that because I... uh, Don't, because I still have no idea. Because this is the first you're hearing about it. Uh, no, I sort of recall an email, but yeah, let's say this is the first I'm hearing of it. Now I'm more confused than ever. (laughs) You look at your emails. (laughs) Sometimes. Yeah. It was a really slow news week in entertainment after us being as in the loop in show business as possible last week when we did a full on Oscars show of days gone by. I found uh, that I wasn't in the loop at all this week. Uh, In many ways, uh, (laughs) neither were you, because we both, neither of us were in the loop for very much the same reason. And uh, one of the reasons we have little to talk about is uh, that we spent a lot of time the last two weeks working on a project that we can't talk about. (laughs) Exactly. How great is that? Top secret projects eat up a lot of time. Remember that bad review Chilpak got one time? We somehow got good reviews as <laughs> people and as hosts, but the show got a bad review. And it was a bad review because all we did was talk about the movie we were making. <laughs> right. Because it took up so much time. Exactly. To make movie. We had literally nothing else, no other bandwidth for for what was going on. And uh, so we have to, from time to time, talk about what is going on in our lives. And yet now, uh, it's as if that reviewer, that critic, uh, authored our contract and, <laughs> and put in a gag order just to preserve his Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. Uh, so, so I went to on the way back into town. I had uh, Lily read out loud the headlines from uh, Deadline Hollywood. Oh yeah, and it was just a whole lot of nothing. Well, one of your headlines is Facebook to hold a meeting on Wednesday to decide whether or not to let Donald Trump have a profile again. Um, <laughs> not a lot going on in entertainment on. news. Well, it's post-Oscars, too, right? So that's always a notoriously slow time because there was so much ramp-up to the awards and um, all PR machines working overtime to get their person front and center that now everybody takes a... Takes a little bit of a break. Yeah, I get get that, except uh, realize this, sir. The Oscars were two months later than usual. So... If we're going by traditional calendars, I would counter by pointing out it's the first week of May, which is when the summer movie season traditionally would begin. Oh. So not hearing a lot about that, are we? No, that's true. But everything is off whack because of the global pandemic and everything. So, uh, Oh, you read the email about the global pandemic. 
<laughs> uh, no, no, I think my neighbors told me about that one. I haven't been out of the house. And it's, it doesn't seem to be really just a slow week in entertainment. I mean, thank goodness we're not being inundated, as far as I know, at this moment, knock on whatever, about another mass shooting or something like that, or another COVID surge or something like that. But um, this weekend, I guess, uh, or, or last week, uh, Fox News was actually even reporting on UFO sightings in Florida. Wow. I mean, dear God. They aren't even pretending to be real news anymore. And I know, I know a, a lot of our friends care about UFOs. You care about UFOs. I care uh, about uh, and, and I understand. And I'm not saying the investigation into it doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. I am saying it isn't news. Sightings of UFOs aren't, aren't, aren't news. Now, if the government issues a report uh, with some interesting details uh, revealing what they know, revealing what they covered up, asking questions. This might be news. Right. Um, you know, and, and I'm not just saying it's not news because it's not UFOs. A lot of what is reported on 24-hour stations, oddly enough, is not news. Um, but they're not even pretending anymore. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's nutty uh, that, that nobody seems to have anything... Uh, to talk about. So that's the end of our show. No, wait. I want to talk about this. No, uh, in in the last um, COVID relief plan, there was way down on page 200 uh, that all government agencies had 200 days to release everything they had on UFOs. And so this is why there's a surge in UFO sighting reporting uh, from the military and all the branches. Right, from them. From them. Yeah. It is interesting, I mean, or not, that our good friends at the National UFO Reporting Center, uh, yeah. featured on uh, part one of our documentary series that only has one part, The Truth is Out There, um, it, it, there were, what, a thousand more UFO sightings reported last year than the year before. Just a huge increase. And yeah. already this year, a big increase. Um, which uh, lets you know people will see things when they have nothing else to do. <laughs> we'll look up into the skies. Exactly. And- exactly. I didn't mean to make it seem like they're seeing things that aren't there. I mean, right. no. In many cases, people are seeing much more what is there, you know, like their wives and their kids and things like <laughs> <Right>. that. <laughs> yeah. but, but the worst thing about it is that it's not a cover-up. It's that the government agencies say, yeah, they're there. And we don't know what it is. That's Nobody. always been. That's always been. You know, like the smoking bullet of the of the uh, Rand Corporation. Was it the Rand Corporation document yes. that Dean, uh, I mean, that Tucker talked about with you, Dean? Uh, yeah. You know, one of the thick think tanks that says, you know, what would happen if we admitted that aliens uh, actually exist? And, of course, they said you must not do that. Uh, it would lead to global panic, etc. Uh, interesting wormholes to go down and theoretical conversations to have. But indeed, there is a whole way of looking at it, which was they're keeping their bases covered in case they learned something. Um, you, you know, and honestly, that's when you would do these little research assignments and theoretical position papers is before you've learned the answer yourself. Because once you've learned the answer, the idea of keeping it secret is uh, it's not going to wait for a think tank to figure out how to handle it. 
That's very fascinating. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but anyway, so uh, not a lot going on. Uh, pretty much all that's happening in Hollywood uh, apparently is mourning over Olympia Dukakis. And, uh, and we will open the Chill Pack more. Again, it was very kind of so many entertainment notables to die over the last few weeks <laughs> so that we could fill a show. But I would <laughs> like to point out that this is the 14th anniversary of this show. Wow. For most of its run, uh, known as Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. Right. Though not initially. But when this show launched, it was on May 8th, 2007. Good Lord. I was so young then. Here's what we wrote about it. Today's topics... Dean comments on a documentary he saw at the Silver Lake Film Festival called Improbable Collapse. Oh. Phil reports on a star ceremony in Palm Springs, an addition to their Walk of Fame. (laughs) The guys talk about Spider-Man 3. Wow. Waitress, the Motion Picture Association of America, and the history of the X rating, gaming the ratings board, <laughs> and art versus commerce versus freedom of expression. Oh, that sounds like a good show. It kind of sounds like a show that you could drop into from almost any year. We haven't changed one iota in 14 years. Two years later, Dean, it was our second anniversary. <laughs> All right. Wait, how? Wait, two years later? was our second second anniversary, May 11th, 2009. Here's the description of that show. Okay. Take whatever warp speed you can muster, mister, to Starbase CHH for the latest boldly goings of Dean Haglund. Somebody really... had taken their vitamins before writing yeah, this description. I'll say. For the latest boldly goings of Dean Haglund as he discusses his appearances at several recent sci-fi and fan conventions, Phil Lairness explains why he has managed to beam up a hangover with him onto this week's show. <laughs> then it's hailing frequencies open as Dean and Phil spend the rest of the hour talking about films they've seen. Phil locks his phasers of analysis onto the J.J. Abrams-directed reboot of the Star Trek franchise, and Uh, Dean performs a complete censor sweep on the films of Guy Madden. (laughs) Dean and Phil have their tractor beams locked onto much more, including Last Chance Harvey, the films of John Cassavetes, the Mm -hmm. resurrection of Jean-Claude Van Damme, Oh, yeah. The absolute perfection of Audrey Tattoo and two hilariously awful films from Turkey. (laughs) Finally, Dean and Phil will follow up their discussion of conspiracies and conspiracy-based movies from a couple weeks back and will actually deactivate the cloaking device on their new feature-length project that starts shooting in the fall. Steady as she goes. That was the description. I kind of want to listen to that. Uh, yeah. It's not available at present, but you know what is available for the first time in years, Dean? Uh, episode one? No, that's still not available either. But <laughs> the 10th anniversary show, episode 520, oh. uh, has just been made reavailable for the first time in years. It was our 10th top 10 show of our 10th year. Wow. That's a lot. May 1st, 2017, 
Do you know what we counted down during that 10th anniversary show? Well, let's see. We did James Bond movies. That was one of our first, wasn't it? No, I don't think it was that year. Remember, we, remember we, we decided to celebrate our 10th year with 10 top 10 shows. Right. 10. Oh, so we, yeah, we counted down our 10 best top 10 shows. Did we? No, uh, the 10th anniversary was each of us counted down our all-time favorite episodes of Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. Uh, and, how fun. And I think we even used clips. So that's once again available at chillpackhollywood.com, episode 520. If you're newer to the show, more recently uh, have found us, congratulations. Hey, congratulations. And you might enjoy that uh, as a, a primer on where your explorations might lead. If you hear uh, sounds in the background, you're hearing probably my cat, Fuzz Aldrin. I did hear Fuzz. I thought I was hallucinating cats. Caterwauling. You also hear the uh, door to the Chilpak morgue being unlocked. Celebrity deaths. Olympia Dukakis. She won an Oscar, of course, for her supporting role in the 1987 hit Moonstruck, which was a movie. That she was in and won an Oscar for. Right. Uh, She also starred in Steel Magnolias. There's another movie that she was in. Uh, Away From Her, which I did enjoy, uh, Sarah Pauly's movie Away From Her, and uh, honestly don't remember Olympia Dukakis in it. No. She was in the three Look Who's Talking films. Oh, well, that's why I haven't seen her recent work. Uh, three three movies uh, that she was in that I have not seen. Mr. Holland's Opus. Uh, uh, wait oh. a minute. Mr. Holland's Opus not only starred Richard Dreyfuss, but also Olympia Dukakis. Yeah, I'm not uh, that. I haven't seen that. Won't be seeing that. <laughs> she died at her home in New York City. She was 89 and had been in ill health for some time. Other film credits include Over the Hill, I Love Trouble, Picture Perfect, Television credits, kind of interesting, the 1993 transgender drama Tales of the City and its 1998 sequel, which earned her an Emmy nomination, and she appeared in Netflix's 2019 revival titled Armistead Mopan's Tales of the City. Um, I, I seem to be a little bit harsh in talking about her, but the point was, I really was racking my brain going, I feel like I've always known who Olympia Dukakis was, certainly... I must have enjoyed something she was in. And, uh, I mean, Moonstruck is a movie that I saw uh, more than once. I saw it when it came out. I saw it again recently. There's a charm to (laughs) it. But uh, um, something she was in that I enjoyed, I guess, away from her, though, again, not remembering it. So it just seems interesting to me that I've always known who Olympia Dukakis is. But uh, didn't particularly enjoy anything she was in or didn't see the things she was in. Right. Well, in a way from her, she she had a husband, didn't she, who had Alzheimer's while Gordon Pinsent's, uh was sitting there. And I believe those two struck a friendship, I'm oh, saying. Well, that certainly makes sense. Whether or not that's true, that is how it will live in my mind. If somebody <laughs> asks, what did she play in a way from her? Now, here's the nub, though. Uh, She was already 56 when she plays Cher's mother, Rose Castorini, in Norman Jewison's Moonstruck, right? Right, yeah. Um, She had been a longtime theater veteran, 
And I feel that this is the Olympia Dukakis I would have loved and, uh, you know, never got to see. Right. Right. It, the stage. Yeah. Stage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Not only actress, but also uh, kind of a little bit of a impresario, uh, as, <laughs> as we'll learn. Um, it wasn't as uh, Oscar winning character actress. It wasn't as cousin of one-time presidential hopeful and Democratic Party standard bearer Michael Dukakis. It wasn't those things to which I gravitate. Honestly, it isn't even her her lifelong activism and philanthropy. But Dukakis, who earned a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2013, graduated from Boston University with a degree in physical therapy and a master's in the performing arts. Wow. She uh, began her career in New York City, made her debut in the Aspern Papers in 1962, and that same year she married actor-producer Louis Zorich, famous for his hit NBC comedy, Mad About You Decades Later. Wow. That's crazy. They had three, uh, three children. And indeed, unless I'm mistaken, she had a recurring role on that sitcom. Mad, mad about uh, you as one of their parents, um, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, it must be. But in 1963, she wins an Obie Award for A Man's a Man and then a second Obie Award two years later in The Marriage of Bet and Boo. So she comes out guns blazing off Broadway and that's what I would expect. And again, I feel really disappointed that I never got to see her. Her work in the Broadway comedy Social Security playing Marlo Thomas's mother was her ticket to film work. Though again, Ah. it would still be decades before she breaks through in Moonstruck. She, along with her husband, she founded the Charles Playhouse in Boston and the whole theater in Montclair, New Jersey in the 1970s. They appeared together in several productions. She taught drama at NYU while also teaching at the American Conservatory Theater and serving on its board of trustees. So an impresario, a a theater actress, a teacher. I'm beginning to understand why so many people, especially in uh, show business, uh, were quite moved at her death. Right. She's uh, touched, affected. She made a difference in the theater world, I would say. Much the same way DMX made uh, quite an influence in the hip-hop world. He was an acclaimed rapper and actor known for hits, including Party Up, parentheses, up in here. He died April 9th uh, at a hospital in White Plains, New York, after being on life support from cardiac arrest. He was born Earl Simmons, began rapping in the genre's early days. He beatboxed for another rapper, before beginning to write his own lyrics and perform. And uh, I always love stories about this, that his mixtapes helped build his... Uh, I'm going to let you finish opening your, your candy wrapper. You did not hear that. Of course I did. You're uh, eating something now. What was it? <laughs> red vines. I'm going with no, red vines. Dutch licorice. Uh, <laughs> red vines is the Cupertino version of Dutch licorice. All right. <laughs> If only you knew how much Mike Stewart and I were devouring red vines all week in Montecito. What? Yeah, it's true. Uh, anyway, is there any point in continuing about DMX? 
Um, no, I was fascinated, actually. The mixtape. Yeah, mixtapes mix tape. built his popularity around New York, and uh, he began being featured on other rappers' releases, including LL Cool J's 1991 single, 4, 3, 2, 1. His raspy growl of a voice was distinctive and immediately uh, recognizable. By the late 90s, he had a recording contract with Def Jam Records and released his first solo hit in 1998, Get At Me Dog. His debut album, It's Dark and Hell is Hot, entered the Billboard chart at number one, as did his next four albums. He wow. was the only rapper to have his first five albums debut at number one. His third album, And Then There Was X, included uh, the 2000 top 10 single, Party Up. He was nominated for Grammy Awards in 2001. Uh, he earned another Grammy nomination the following year for his single, Who We Be. And he won the American Music Awards Favorite Rap Hip Hop Artist Award two years in a row in both 2000 and 2001. Uh, he was also an actor. Uh, his uh, acting career started in 98 with a starring role in Belly alongside other rappers uh, like Method Man. In 2000, he had a supporting role in Romeo Must Die. Oh, uh, his other movies include Exit Wounds, Cradle to the Grave, Never Die Alone, and Beyond the Law. He uh, also had a BET reality series that he starred in called, conveniently enough, DMX, Soul of a Man. Who are we going to get to star in DMX, Soul of a Man? Let's get... I have no idea. Well, I would try DMX. <laughs> he made other TV appearances on shows such as Moesha, Third Watch, and Eve. He was arrested a number of times and served several prison and jail sentences. His offenses included reckless driving, resisting arrest, carjacking, drug possession, and animal cruelty. We're ending on a really dark note. Wow. Most recently, let's bring the room up. In 2017, he was convicted of tax fraud. That brought the room up. <laughs> what animal cruelty? How? That's animal cruelty. That really bummed me out. You're listening to Odyssey. Joy Hummel, first woman to write for the Wonder Woman comics. Oh, yeah. Wrote anonymously for several years in the 1940s. She died April 5th at her home in Winter Haven, Florida at the age of 97. She wasn't looking for a job as a comic book writer. She was 19 years old and a recent graduate of secretarial school. But one of her instructors approached her to ask if she'd help write some stories for his comic. He was William Marston, Wonder Woman's creator. And he had noticed while teaching Hummel that she was a good writer. He wanted a young woman who believed in Wonder Woman's feminist philosophy and who could also write using current slang. She was profiled in Jill Lepore's 2014 book, The Secret History of Wonder Woman, and uh, she was honored at San Diego Comic-Con International in 2018 uh, with the Bill Finger Award, which recognizes unsung writers. Uh, she stopped writing for Wonder Woman after Marston's death, 
when she became unhappy with the less feminist direction the comic was taking without his influence. Her name hadn't appeared on her work, so she remained largely unknown. Are we expecting to find out that there are a lot more unsung women who contributed to comic books through the years than we might have thought? I'm going to say yes, because uh, Marston himself, William Marston, uh, had a uh, polyamorous relationship with two women, uh, which greatly influenced the creation of Wonder Woman. He had a wife and a life partner, uh, both of which, uh, uh, I guess, they were a happy family. But, you know... Um, That's like a G-rated James Bond character name. I'm Polly, <laughs> polyamorous. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's pretty good. I I imagine there probably is a lot more uh, ghost writing by women in the comic books. But uh, yeah, was it really an all a man's game back in the 50s? I guess so, eh? Another one that you might know about, uh, contributor to Mad Magazine. Uh, longtime writer there, Frank Jacobs. Uh, oh, yeah. Best known for his song parodies. Right. Died April 5th in Tarzana, California uh, at the age of 91. He first joined Mad in 1957 when he picked up a copy of Mad. He was so inspired that he reached out to the magazine's leadership with a pitch, Why I Left the Army and Became a Civilian. <laughs> that pitch was published. And it was the beginning of his 57 years with the magazine. He wrote wow. a wide variety of features for Mad, uh, but mostly was associated with his song parodies, including Blue Cross, a parody of Blue Skies. Luella Schwartz describes her malady, A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody. And East Side Story, of course, West Side Story. Right. In, in 1961, Irving Berlin sued Mad over Jacob's parodies from a pullout section called Sing Along with Mad. The U.S. Court of Appeals famously ruled in his favor. Really was an important case in protecting uh, the art of parody. Yeah, parody law. That's right. So then that led to uh, Wu-Tang doing uh, Ugly Woman, but using the original Roy Orbison master tracks and winning. And the Roy Orbison estate could not get a cent out of Wu-Tang crew, 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 because of parody law. You would think also, though, they did get a cent or more out of it, because I don't think something like that being used hurts the sales of the original. Well, that's true. Provided the estate owned the master, and then we go back to really dirty dealing in the record industry, especially back during the 50s and 60s, when artists somehow didn't own their masters. Anyway, unlike other greats of Mad Magazine, uh, some of whom we've discussed, sadly, in Celebrity Deaths not too long ago, such as Mort Drucker, Jacobs wasn't an illustrator. His writing was often illustrated by Mad's cartoonists. Uh, he also wrote Mad paperback books, including The Mad World of William Gains. All right. Um, do you remember his, his stuff? Because I know you were a mad uh, aficionado. I was a mad aficionado. I had all the magazines. Yes, his, his byline uh, would always come up, um, particularly when uh, they would do uh, that's, that's Entertainment as opposed oh, to that. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so his uh, parodies would always be sung to the tune of, and then there'd be a song that I wouldn't know. So then I would just read it and go, oh, okay, that's funny that it rhymes, but I don't know how this is supposed to scan. And he also did one on Christmas carols, if I believe. And um, 
uh, we used to sing those at Christmas time, uh, his Christmas carol parodies over the actual Christmas carols. That's how much uh, we were into Mad Magazine. I don't know what I would have done if there hadn't been a Mad Magazine. I literally have no idea. He said that. Uh, that's true, right? Some people, their entire careers revolve around that magazine. I know. That's actually pretty cool. That's pretty that cool. Is, yeah. uh, th- those days, sadly, are gone, aren't they? I know. There's no more Mad Magazine. But, I mean, there will, won't be anything like it. I, I mean, that kind of run, I, yeah, I don't right? think. And that kind of influence, too. The lack of curation. Mad Magazine became more than just a magazine. It did become a brand, and it did curate uh, popular culture in a way for you, right? Yeah. Because didn't you want to know what the references meant? Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the thing. Often people say, hey, did you see that movie? And you go, no, but I saw the, I read the Mad Magazine parody of it. And so you get the movie, and often, you know, the illustrators would so get the key scenes that you could picture the whole movie based on if you saw the trailer and you read the Mad Magazine, uh, you know, jokes and all, you, you got the plot line and everything. I would argue also, though, that uh, it'd be interesting if people were ever angry about the parodies because I sort of always felt it was a seal of approval from Mad Magazine if they right. parodied you. I feel sure. like parodying a bad movie would have been beneath them. Yeah, it had to be the most popular movie out there because it is also that frame of reference, right? Lee Aker was a child actor in the 1950s and 60s, best known for starring as Rusty. There I go saying best known. He was most Mm -hmm. famous for playing Rusty on TV's The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin. Died April 1st. See how how backed up we are in the Chillback Morgue? (laughs) Uh, Near Mesa, Arizona, of a stroke at the age of 77. He had been in more than a dozen movies before he got his role on The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, including Jeopardy, Arena, and a notable role in the John Wayne film Hondo. Oh. Later, he made TV appearances on Rescue 8, The Donna Reed Show, Make Room for Daddy, and The Lucy Show. Among uh-huh. his final credits before leaving Hollywood was a small role in Bye Bye Birdie. In later years, he was a carpenter and a ski instructor working as an adaptive sports instructor for people with disabilities. Well, that seems like a heck of a life right there, yeah. I must say. Right there. I'll say. Helen McCrory. This was sad. Uh, not that they're not all sad, but, uh, you know, someone at the age of 52, my age, uh, yeah. dying of, uh, cancer at her home, uh, April 16th, uh, so young and seemed to be so present. That's the thing. How does this person go away? English actress known for roles, uh, including playing Narcissa Malfoy in the final three Harry Potter movies. Oh, she was already well-established, of course, in the UK before joining the Harry Potter cast uh, in 2009 for Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Uh, she had uh, intended to take uh, an earlier Harry Potter role, playing Bellatrix Lestrange, in 2007, but had to drop the role due to pregnancy and was replaced by Helena Bonham Carter. So that lets you know what a big deal she already was. Yeah. In, in, in the UK uh, film industry, if Helena Bonham Carter is your replacement, she played Polly Gray on the BBC period crime drama Peaky Blinders, which I've heard really good things about. Yeah. Her notable movies include The Queen, 2006, Hugo, 2011, 
and Skyfall, uh, the James Bond film in 2012. She also had a role on the Showtime series Penny Dreadful, as well as making appearances on such TV shows as Doctor Who and His Dark Materials. So you see, she turns up in a lot of things that I have watched through these years. And so it's just stunning. Wait a minute. How can she be gone? Right? I know. That's a lot. But death comes to all of us, and sometimes unexpectedly so. (laughs) Well, that, I guess, is true. What better way to to approach it during our 14th anniversary. But this show will never die. (laughs) And so we move on to Gloria Henry, who became a household name in the late 50s when she landed the role of Alice Mitchell on what hit sitcom, Dean? Alice doesn't live here anymore. No, uh, Alice Mitchell on the show Hazel. (laughs) No, it's a mother character, Alice Mitchell, playing the titular character's mother on what hit sitcom? (laughs) Dennis the Menace. Very good. Very good. She died April 3rd at her home in Los Angeles at the age of 98. See, she had a very good run. She had a minor movie career in the 40s and 50s, landed her most notable role playing Dennis's mother, starred as the gentle, loving mother of the mischievous little boy from 1959 until the show's cancellation in 63. And that doesn't sound like a long time, but boy, they churned out a lot of episodes per year back then. Yeah, right? Yeah, they were doing 26, I think, back then. She made uh, appearances on such other shows as Hazel, uh, which you just mentioned, Falcon yeah. Crest, Dallas, Doogie Howser, MD, Parks and Recreation. Her film credits include Miss Grant Takes Richmond with Lucille Ball and Gang War with Charles Bronson. So she had quite a, oh. quite a career, quite a diverse oh. career. I'll say. Another child actor, Johnny Crawford, became famous for playing young Mark McCain on what Western TV series? Dean Hagland. A young Mark McCain. Uh, Have Gun Will Travel. (laughs) That is an actual show. (laughs) I know. That is not the answer we were looking for. Uh, Johnny Crawford dies at age 75 on April 29th. He was famous for playing Mark McCain on The Rifleman. The Rifleman, the other guy with the gun. He got his start in Hollywood as one of the original Mouseketeers back in 1955 when he was just nine years old. But after that season, the producers cut the number of Mouseketeers in half, and Crawford didn't return. Uh, but he lands on his feet in a starring role on The Rifleman in 1958, playing the son of title character Lucas McCain. He was nominated for an Emmy Award for his performance when he was 13. Uh, he also began a musical career then, recording pop hits including Cindy's Birthday and Rumors went on to make uh, appearances on a bunch of other TV shows, including The Donna Reed Show, Mr. Ed, The Big Valley, and in such movies as Indian Paint and The Naked Ape. Wow. He was a U.S. Army veteran during the 1960s, and later in life, uh, Johnny Crawford was the band leader of the appropriately named Johnny Crawford Orchestra. Ah, look at that. There are three more celebrity deaths I want to discuss with you, Dean, one okay. of which is Monty Hellman, director whose cult classic films included Tulane Blacktop. Oh, 
Classic. He died April 20th in California after a fall at his home in the age of nine, at the age of 91. His directorial oh. career began with the 1959 horror movie Beast from Haunted Cave, produced by <laughs> Roger Corman. Like oh. so many great and seminal filmmakers of his age, yeah. he gets his start with Roger Corman. Yeah. Well, that was the, you know, you learned. He, Roger Corman wouldn't give you any money, so you had to learn how to make it. He was film school before there was film school. Yeah, right. And uh, and then after there was film school, Roger Corman incorporated as a film school so that he would continue not having to pay his crews. Gave them credit. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I don't think that lasted long. Anyway, Hellman oh. went on to direct several films starring the up and coming Jack Nicholson, including Flight to Fury and Ride in the Whirlwind, before creating the 1971 road movie Two Lane Blacktop starring musicians James Taylor and Dennis Wilson. The movie followed young street racers across the U.S. and inspired the legendary cross-country race, the Cannonball Run. Cannonball Run, which actually uh, still goes on. And I think uh, because of the pandemic, they did one, and it won New York to L.A. Somebody did it in like 22 hours because nobody was on the road. Wow. I know. Not a fascinating movie to be made of that, but a but really a fun drive. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, that you could really fast. Critics liked Two Lane Blacktop, but it did not do well in theaters. It wasn't until years later that it would reach cult film status. Mm. He went on to direct other films, including Cockfighter, Iguana, and Road to Nowhere. He also directed uh, several action sequences in movies, including in RoboCop directs uh, many of the action scenes in that and was an executive producer on a little something called Reservoir Dogs for Quentin Tarantino. So Monty Hellman, a man that made his mark. I want to see this beast from Haunted Cave. This sounds pretty good, actually. Yeah, taking a deep dive into his filmography could be a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, Um, I'm liking this. Now, someone I doubt we've ever discussed, but I think we both know of, Tempest Storm dies at her home in Las Vegas at the age of 93 on April 20th. She was arguably the most famous burlesque star of all time. Right. Uh, Headlining shows on the Las Vegas Strip. She was born Annie Blanche Banks. Uh, Tempest Storm was working as a waitress in Los Angeles when a customer suggested she should try burlesque. She began working at the Follies Theater in 1951 and by 1956 had become the highest paid burlesque performer in history, making hundred grand per year in 1956. Wow, that's the, pretty good. The following year, she insured her breasts for $1 million. <laughs> Against how... And who is this insurance investor? On Probably that one? Lloyd's of London. I mean, didn't they famously like do Betty Grable's legs? Yeah. And, uh, you have to have you know an assessment first. That, that seems. And you know because Lloyd's insured your long locks on uh, the X Files. <laughs> that they didn't. They oh. never did. Yeah. You wish they did. Yeah. Now. <laughs> The following uh, year, I guess, uh, she changed her name to Tempest Store and became a popular headliner on the Las Vegas Strip, where she continued to headline well into her 50s. Wow. An integral part of Las Vegas culture. She uh, rubbed elbows with the Rat Pack. She dated Elvis Presley. Uh, She toured widely, selling out clubs nationwide. 
and continued to perform until 2010. Really? Do you remember in Fellini's Eight and a Half, the harem scene? Where yes. he can't control even his own fantasies, and there's the showgirl who yeah. is resigned to living upstairs because she's gotten too old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I just picture Tempest Storm in that role. Yeah, <laughs> I can see it. All right, we'll close this up with a lead singer of the Bay City Rollers. Oh my gosh. Les McCown? 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 McCowan? I guess. I wanted you to be able to tell me. This is terrible. (laughs) We're not giving him the respect he deserves. I mean, lead singer of the Scottish band, the Bay City Rollers, who had huge hits uh, in the 1970s, uh, including Saturday Night and Money, Honey. He died suddenly at his home at the age of 65. He joined the Bay City Rollers in 73 when he was still a teenager. Several years of the po- uh, after the, the band was formed, and just as they were beginning to break through to chart success in the UK, they re-recorded several of their early singles with McCown McCune on lead, Scottish. So I'm sure there is a really cool pronunciation. I, I feel terrible hey. about this. Uh, he, whatever you just said. Gesundheit, released their debut album, Rollin', and they began having hits. Uh, They played up their Scottishness by wearing tartan-trimmed outfits. They began crossing over to the U.S. success with Saturday Night, which hit number one in 1975. They followed it with hits including Money, Honey, and I Only Want to Be With You in 1976, and You Made Me Believe in Magic in 1977. And then, as fast as it happened... It quickly unraveled. He left the band in 78. Their success was waning, but he did come back to play with uh, the Bay City Rollers for several reunion shows beginning in 2015. In the meantime, he had formed the band Ego Trip. (laughs) Fantastic. And he released nine solo albums between 1979 and 2016. All that's left for this 14th anniversary show is around of our vintage movie ad game. Yay! I'm starting with a couple of action-packed titles because I know how you like the action movies. Man, oh man. So this is a full-page ad from the Los Angeles Times. Wow. Friday, April 30th, 1993. It ended up being a big hit. Uh, And here we go. The mystery, the life, the love, the legend. James Bond, then, of some sort, wouldn't it be? No. Uh, The mystery, the life, the love, the legend. The legend. So it's a legendary, what, not a biopic. Oh, it's a biopic. It's an action-packed biopic from 93. Yes. Holy smokes. Who did action-packed biopics back then? Uh, Like so many biopics... It has its title and then a colon and then a subtitle. Okay, yeah. Hit me with the subtitle. Well, no, I can't. I can't do that. Because the name of the subject of the biopic is in the subtitle. It was directed by Rob Cohen. Okay. That helps. Not much. I mean, three of my favorite words in cinema are in these credits. And (laughs) Robert Wagner. (laughs) Oh, 
I'm going in reverse order of the casting billing from bottom okay. to top. And Robert Wagner, Nancy Kwan. Their names are after the title. Before the title, Lauren Hawley and the actor who played the titular role, Jason Scott Lee. Oh, it's uh, Bruce Lee. Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Yes, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Sticking in the action genre, this one has an important place in uh, movie history for a couple different reasons, which okay. maybe we'll discuss. Let's do this. It's from 1991, December of 91. Ooh, Christmas. It's an Oscar hopeful. No, it's an action film. It's a box office hopeful. They're two fallen heroes up against the gambling syndicate in pro sports. Everyone had counted them out, but they're about to get back in the game. Holy Wait, sports gambling is an action movie? Uh, unless they're betting on... There is, you know, a tagline after the title. Yeah. Okay. The goal is to survive. Oh, is this Rollerball? No. <laughs> the remake of Rollerball would not have been an important movie in show business history. Okay. I will uh, say that one of the reasons that this was important was I think at the time it set a record for the largest spec script sale in history at that uh, point in time. It would be broken, but it did set a record. Oh, so this is written Launching the career of its writer, who would become a writer-director of films you greatly enjoy. Oh, this is Lethal Weapon. This is not Lethal what? Weapon, but that did launch... The writer's career. You are right. But yeah. uh, so I maybe I spoke incorrectly, but I mean this spec script really, you know, catapulted him to a new level. It is the same writer. You are right. It is Shane Black. Shane Black. Yeah. Big deal. Uh, big. Uh, okay. This so one Shane is Black. directed by Tony Scott. It and co-stars one of the names above the title is Damon Wayans. A Shane Black Dane Wayne's move. What the? They're two fallen heroes up against the gambling syndicate in pro sports. Everyone had counted them out, but they're about to get back in the game. Hot off Die Hard, it also stars the first name above the title, Bruce Willis. What? Oh, this thing. Yeah, what was that called? Ah, oh, set of a gun. I know it. <laughs> I can't remember the damn name of the movie. Bruce Willis, yeah. The? The Gambler. Last? Oh, yeah, The Last Action Hero. No, that was uh, Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. (laughs) This is The Last Boy Scout. Oh, The Last Boy Scout, damn it. I kind of expected you to get that one. That's Yeah, you know, I think I blocked that one out because I went with a a relationship. I was in a relationship at the time that movie came out, and that... uh, that relationship didn't end well, and uh, so... That I relationship stick- was with Damon Wayans. <laughs> In weird ways, this one might be better remembered, possibly for all the wrong re- definitely for all the wrong reasons. Uh-oh. The war that won a nation its freedom, a woman her destiny, 
a young man his independence and a father his son's love. It's from December of 1985, rushed to completion to get into theaters in time to be eligible for Oscars, a move that certainly didn't help the quality of the movie. Holy smokes. Uh, Bonfires of the Vanity. It is also, has a tagline. Okay. (laughs) An American epic. Oh. And rushed to completion to a woman, a war, the one of country it's freedom. Oh, so uh, it's called uh, 1776. You're right war, right era. Wrong name. What? It's 85 war movie or Civil War movie. Directed um, by uh, Hugh Hudson, director of uh, 1981's Best Picture winner Chariots of Fire. Oh. His career would definitely take a hit from this. <laughs> I would say so. There is a name above the title whose career took such a hit he did not work again for four long years. Wow. Oh, is this um, uh, uh, Revolution? It's Revolution, Al Pacino. It, revolution. He did not rushed. work again until uh, Sea of Love in 89. Oh, no. That's terrible. Right? All right, here we go. We're closing out. Gang. With another action-packed title, also from 1985. I'm, lead, I'm reading you the second part of the ad copy. <laughs> I'll go back to the first part if you need it. Oh. A big city cop, a small country boy, they have nothing in common but a murder. Robert De Niro and uh, the boy's life, this boy's life. <laughs> All right. The first part of the ad copy in the hugest print you could possibly imagine, <laughs> Harrison Ford is John Book. Oh, this thing. This thing. This is the movie <laughs> that makes Harrison Ford Harrison Ford, that makes him a movie star, because he has played Indiana Solo in a handful of movies, but the movies what? were the stars, were they not? Yes, this is the first time he has a big hit because he's the name above the title. And not only that, it's kind of magic because it's the sort of hit that Hollywood loves the best. The big, entertaining, crowd-pleasing hit that gets lots of Oscar nominations. Oh, it got lots of Oscar nominations. (laughs) I don't know. I can't believe I I thought this was a slam dunk. I thought this was a no-brainer. I thought Harrison Ford is John Book is one of the most famous ad lines of that era. It is Witness. Oh. We'll be back next week uh, with the start of the second 14 years of your chill fat Hollywood hour. Belated spoiler alert. Odyssey. Dare to wonder. I came from a low-income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GC became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. 
I'm Stacy in Grand Canyon University. Help me find my purpose.